0: yo yo what's going on everyone it's dr jordan Seda coming to you live from new york city are you ready to go to health and back all right let's get it
1: welcome to health and back a podcast run by a physical therapist focused on fitness performance and mindset tools for success and now here's your host
0: dr jordan sata What's going on, people? I'm fresh off of a trip from uh, half of my motherland, Italia. So I'm feeling fresh. Uh, I ate fresh food. I'm feeling really good about myself and getting back on the podcast. And I'm coming in hot with uh, a a friend, a wonderful guest. Um, I have many good things to say about her, but I'm going to allow her to introduce herself. Aida, what is up?
1: Not much. I'm kind of jealous of you having a trip. I was looking at all your Instagram posts and uh, eating through the lens. I'm very, very jealous. Uh, so welcome back. But next time, maybe you invite me along. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> I-, I packed lately, so I couldn't fit you in there this time.
1: Damn it. I'll work on my flexibility.
0: <laughs> and I just realized I'm so used to calling you Ida, but I should have been calling you Dr. Koritem
1: coratem Coratum, Coraitum. Yeah, it's, you know, I thank my dad for this overly complex last name. I could have been a Smith or a Seda. No, Coratem. But no need, just call me Ida.
0: Does Coratum mean anything? No, uh,
1: absolutely nothing.
0: Uh, because my last name means silk in Spanish. I don't know if you knew that.
1: Excuse me, I did yeah. not.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> amazing. No, no cool meanings behind my name. <laughs>
0: Okay, so we're going to call her Ida for all intensive purposes, Uh, but Ida comes with a vast majority of experience in healthcare and fitness, and I'm going to let her take it from here and tell all of you who she is.
1: Thank you for that, Jordan. So hi, everyone. It's an honor to be here with you today. I come to you with Dr. Seda as both a client, a friend, a, a fan, um, but really what my backstory is, uh, I'm an occupational therapist and, uh, I started off my career in health and fitness actually as an athletic trainer. So I did my undergraduate studies and athletic training or up in Canada where I did study I'm not Canadian tuition is just cheaper up there. Wow. So I was an athletic therapist over here. They call that athletic training. And through that journey of working with athletes, college level athletes, I became fascinated with hands. Um, I worked with an athlete who was a rugby player who injured his hands severely. and as an athletic trainer, we designed an amazing rehab program, but there was something more to it that I was fascinated by, and that that was that he was a musician. Um, and as a fellow musician, I told him, "Well, what do you want to do? What is something that's so meaningful for you about music that we could do? When my supervisor heard me have that conversation with that athlete, she said, "You need to go into occupational therapy." And as many, people will say, I said, well, what is occupational therapy? I had no idea what it was. I initially wanted to go into physical therapy. So after research realized, yes, OT is for me. I'm gonna be a certified hand therapist. I went to the University of British Columbia, got my master's in occupational therapy, did my first rotation in hand therapy and I hated it. Nothing bad about hand therapy. I just realized it wasn't what I was looking for at the time. My obsession with human anatomy and biomechanics was being fed by hand therapy, but there was something else I needed more of, and that was the pediatric population. I fell in love with the population of autism spectrum disorder and working in pediatrics. I could not believe that I got to play with kids and call it my job. Fast forward, I worked as an occupational therapist for six and a half years before moving in the Middle East, by the way. So I worked in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, Dubai, all that fancy stuff. But I moved to New York city became, continued my work as an occupational therapy, got my doctorate in occupational therapy from Columbia university and was a supervisor of occupational therapy. So I went into the management role and then I still hit a wall with all of that. I hit a wall. I realized I wanted more. I got doctorate. Okay, cool. Um, So my second passion, just like how I was teaching kids, I want to teach adults. So that brings me to my current position right now. I'm a faculty member at Long Island University, where I teach most of the advanced pediatrics classes and human anatomy. So all of my past passions, I was finally and I am finally able to bring it to where I'm at today. So that's a little bit about me. Fun fact, I love donuts a little bit too much more than your average human. And um, how did I get to meet Jordan? Well, through various injuries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so various, various injuries, and I needed help, and nothing was working. And uh, I believe, Jordan, you treated more than one body part. Neck, shoulders, knees, and toes.
0: So, yeah. I will say... Uh Aside from everything that is great about her, she does have incredible donut taste. Like she actually chooses some of the best flavored donuts possible. And I start feeling this mouth-watering sensation when I look at some of her photos. So if you need donut recommendations, and well, you need your hands in order to eat donuts, so therefore she can restore your hand function in order to put donuts in your mouth, dip them in coffee before putting them in your mouth, any combination of such. Now, to the average person, and even to you when you first went down this path of OT, you didn't really know what it was. And aside from me being in the profession, I don't think many people really understand what occupational therapists do. If you had to do like a bare bones analysis, synopsis of what an occupational therapist does What would you say
1: everything we do everything i wish i could just stop at that let me elaborate and educate so occupational therapy similar to physical therapy it's a form of rehab medicine it's under the umbrella of rehabilitation um but what occupational therapy is it's a rehab a form of rehab that looks at meaningful activities as therapeutic activities. We look at the client in a holistic manner, and we address, well, what is it that they need to do, want to do, and why? Physical therapists, who are our best friends, and we're not better than you, and you're not better than us, okay? You know, you have a specific approach and a specific lens to what does health, wellness, pain management, range of motion look like. Whereas occupational therapists will take that but also expand on it. Well, who is the person who was in pain, who was trying to access resources? So for example, I feel like I've had four careers in my one career as an occupational therapist. I've worked in spinal cord rehab. I've worked in wound management, making sure that individuals who are bedbound are not developing pressure ulcers. I've worked in pediatrics, as I mentioned earlier cerebral palsy, wheelchair management, wheelchair technicians, and all that stuff. But I've also worked in vocational rehab, helping individuals transition from being ill or managing a health medication to returning to work. So that, that's another beauty of occupational therapy is that we also take into account cognition, the cognitive aspects of living and health and wellness. And that's actually what I specialized at I was at Columbia doing my doctorate. It was executive functioning in kids with autism and then moving on to the executive functioning of the therapists in short occupational therapy is really everything it's everything that we do and when there's a health limitation that is seen as a barrier of you wanting to do something you love that's when you need to talk to an occupational therapist Now in New York City, for some of the audience members who might be in the city, you might know what an OT is because we work in schools, we work in hospitals. So those are the two main areas. So I, you know, put me under pressure, trying to represent and make sure that I know exactly what it is, what I do. But it's it's really so many different things.
0: Yeah, and I'm starting to see a little bit more overlap over time between what you do and what we do. Although... Correct me if I'm wrong. Historically, it seems like if people had to categorize PTs and OTs, PTs would be more like gross motor function and OTs would be more fine motor function. Would you say that's inaccurate?
1: Yes, very inaccurate. So I really hope that after today's uh, episode with you, that you know, your audience will realize that there's more to it. So if you want fine motor action as being able to use fine, intricate, detailed movements in your hands, I did not get a master's degree just to focus on this. (laughs) Okay. There's so much more to it. And another inaccurate way that uh, people used to define it was OT is everything above, PT is everything below. But as a physical therapist and both of us as clinicians know it's actually a whole chain. Everything is connected to each other. So it's almost a disservice for us to not treat a client belly below. So what does that mean about posture? So if a child has poor fine motor skills, chances are it has to do with something in their posture, in their core. I'm not going to refer them to physical therapist because I can tackle that too.
0: Here's a question that I don't think you're prepared for, or you might be, which I love. And this is what I love doing the podcast for. Why do you think it is historically that occupational therapists tend to only see like hand and wrist injuries? Well, at least definitely in New York City, I, I see that often. Is it more of like what insurance will reimburse for? That if you're an occupational therapist and you treat like a foot injury, you won't get reimbursed for that? Or is it some just like the status quo? It
1: could be a result of so many different things. It might have started out as just, this is my territory, this is your territory. Because OTs face the same um, argument with speech therapists when it comes to dysphagia management, the inability to swallow properly, to manage a bolus of food. Um, Occupational therapists are also trained in dysphagia management and anything to do with the oral motor area. I don't have a straight answer for you, but it could have stemmed from, okay, Let's negotiate. This is yours. This is mine. Let's leave it at that. And from there, probably the insurance policies and whatnot said, okay, well, since they agreed to do it that way, we will agree to continue to do it that way. And it trickled down.
0: So. Yeah, I, yeah, I totally see that. But I will say out of the two of us, if I do have a, a child in the clinic and I in my career I've had that I would definitely defer to you dealing with the child than, than me because I don't have that happy-go-lucky voice or anything, even just to connect with the child. Um, so even when I have children, I might have to deflect them to you.
1: <laughs> Ida, here. Well, you, you raise a good point because now that I'm teaching master's students, you know, on the first day of class, I'll walk in and I'll say, let me guess, 25 out of 30 of you want to go into pediatrics. It's hot, it's a hot topic. Pediatrics is cool, it's fun, and I'll be correct most of the time. Indeed, let's say 23 out of 30 OT students want to go into pediatrics. And I tell them that's great, it's amazing, it's rewarding, but it's also tiring. And you really need to understand it takes a personality for you to be a clinician to begin with, whether it's physical therapists or occupational therapists. It takes a specific kind of character for you to succeed. Lucky for me, I'm a five-year-old at heart. So working with kids was natural for me. And I, and I find myself still having trouble being an adult at times. So bring all the kids to me, all right? I'll have some fun activities for them.
0: Yeah, and that that definitely, I think, aligns very nicely with I, I, I can believe that you're a professor, but I also, because I know I've known you for so long now that, you know, I didn't even, I think I knew you even before you were on this doctoral PhD journey. So it's kind yeah. of crazy that now here you are educating people, but it's amazing, especially because in the pediatrics curriculum, that's like your passion. So no better person to take people down that road. But where did you get your inspiration from to teach and not practice as much?
1: That's a really good question. Thank you for that. My inspiration to teach stems from, oh my gosh, a really, really long journey of self-reflection. Ever since I was a kid, I was always a funny kid. I loved being the center of attention for a good reason. You know, and also being a musician, I loved being on stage. I was in drama class. I was, I just loved being seen and having something to say. And I realize I just love educating people, whether they're children or adults. I, I've done hundreds of educational workshops. So it's a combination of me wanting to be heard, but me being known for what I'm saying. So that, that's where teaching came into play. So if I'm going to talk and talk and talk and have people want to listen to me and, and really take me seriously, then I'm gonna make it about science. So I went to get my doctoral degree, make sure that I have all my evidence in check. And, you know, when you become a clinician, when you become an occupational therapist or a PT, you realize you need to be a lifelong learner. You know, the the human body doesn't change, but what we do to the human body does. And, you know, so that's where research is ever changing and whatnot. So to become a teacher, and I I find myself so lucky that I get to wake up in the morning, most mornings, excited to be on my little tiny stage, which is the classroom. And it's hard because students will talk back, but that's the challenge that I keep wanting more of. So my inspiration to teach came from me, things about me that I love doing in other leisurely.
0: Yeah, and I think you're doing a really good job segueing from topic to topic, so (laughs) here you are in on your on your small stage of an ot classroom and you're now in your second semester teaching full-time what did you learn you know having that interaction with the students and just i mean you're also dealing with like a COVID era and just like dealing with curriculum and stuff like what did you learn from your first semester that's going to make you a better teacher moving forward
1: again what the question is really Amazing. So one thing I forgot to mention in the previous question was what also inspired me to teach was one professor. It took one professor for me to realize this is exactly what I wanted to do. And he was the first professor I had when I was still in athletic training school. And I'm still in contact with him today. He changed my life because he saw me. He saw how Me, Ida Tim offers a unique perspective on understanding health and wellness and athleticism, blah, blah, blah. So I went to him and I said, I want to be you when I grow up, all right? And then he helped build that path for me. Moving on to what I learned recently as, as a new faculty member teaching in an era of COVID is that empathetic teaching, empathetic leadership goes a long, long way. And the professor that I am to these students is the professor I wish I had when I was in their position. That authority that we have a quiz here where you're gonna learn this and blah, 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 and all that stuff might work for certain disciplines. But when you're working with students who some of them are parents at a very young age, some of them have other responsibilities, have second jobs, that authority is not gonna work with them. So what did I learn? I learned that empathetic leadership should be studied and it is actually being studied, was the best way to go about with these students because with empathetic teaching and empathetic leadership, you are seeing the student for who they are, not, who, not for who you want them to be at the end of the class. A class is meant to involve some growth, some challenges, some self-reflection, especially in adult learning. We're grown-ups right now. These are master students. In anatomy, it's a little bit different. When I teach anatomy, it's a little bit of, you need to know the origin and insertion in two weeks. But then I also add to that by, you know, being a little bit more flexible with the assignments. It's not the end of the world if you are five minutes late to my class. Really, it isn't. Other things I might be strict on, but that was the big thing for me. How far and how much trust I developed with these students And then feeling that they were safe in that classroom, they asked more questions. Because they asked more questions, they were able to process that information. And I thankfully collected all this evidence. They performed so much better in their class. So that's that.
0: I think I just did like a whole lifetime reflection on my personal educational journey based off of what you just said. I saw something, I think it was about two months ago, it was a meme. It's like, well, there goes another day where I didn't use the Pythagorean theorem in my life. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, but it's like, it just goes to show you, it's like everything that we've been assessed on is like, okay, can we solve like fairly complex problems? Yes. But does it help us as individuals in life, especially in a profession like what we're in, where we empathy does hold not just a lot of weight. It is essential in order to help an individual reach their goals. Uh, So it's funny, I was talking about empathy and the ability to teach empathy recently. And uh, I know there have been studies on that. Uh, I don't know if you know them, if you do, you can certainly chime in here. Uh, I like to think that everyone who applies for a healthcare related profession is an empathetic person, but I think there's like, there are levels That some people just have like a baseline level of empathy but to go an extra the extra mile the communication and asking the questions uh i don't know from your experience is that something that can be acquired
1: that's you know you do raise Uh, it an interesting because you know how do we even measure empathy are you born with it or do you learn it honestly let's use myself as an example I grew up with two parents who were amazing, and I learned most of my skills from observing how my parents dealt with people. And a lot of children in childhood development, that's where they learn from. Eventually their peers, and if they're lucky, their peers will be similar to them. But I learned my empathy through my culture, through my being an Arab American, and then through my parents. Can it be acquired? You know, I'm going to say yes for now, because we do social skills training for individuals who might have trouble with that. You know, we are social individuals who learn through professional development. So at Long Island University, we do have some professional development classes that discuss empathy, how to be a better empathetic learner as opposed to a sympathetic learner, stuff like that. So... Sure, you can probably acquire it, but can you apply it naturally where it's not robotic and automatic? I'm not sure, but it's so crucial, so, so crucial. And I think one, if anyone is interested in in reading more about it, I think a good place to start is to realize that empathy can be measured in micrograms. The smallest gestures you could do can be seen as empathetic. And if you do too much, that's how you burn out. So really trying to balance yourself, your spectrum of empathy is, is a whole process. It's fun, but can take time.
0: Spectrum of empathy. I think you should trademark that because I might, <laughs> if you don't. <laughs> is, yeah. yeah, balance is hard. Um, speaking of balance, though, I've been called on. Un- uh, my job for, in your life has been to help you find balance in uh, finding time for fitness and taking care of yourself. Um, so in the process, I think you've learned a lot. You definitely, since I started working with you, you're, you're crushing it. So I, and it was a process. It still is a process uh, because a lot of things happen. You started teaching, you got married, you got sick, uh, but at the same time, uh, you always love movement. You love kettlebell training uh, in particular. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the value of kettlebell training and just overall strength and conditioning in your life.
1: So, you know, strength and conditioning goes way back. You know, I was always athletic. I always loved movement, uh you know, but being your typical undergraduate athletic trainer, I was just working in one plane, let's get those biceps, those triceps, let's work on leg day and and all that stuff. Um, And I never saw results like I did until today, you know, and then I realized that strength and conditioning is, you know, it needs to involve a mindset as well, not just here's what I'm gonna do four times a week, I'm gonna recover-ish, I'm gonna eat junk food and start all over again the next week. It wasn't long-term and it took me understanding what does functional movement mean and I, I learned that through OT and through you and working with other clinicians. And through functional movement, I realized our body, our human machine was not designed to work in single plane movements. Our body was not designed to be able to do 20 bicep curls, 30 tricep curls, bench this bench that again, no offense. I'm not speaking ill on those ways. It just wasn't working for me. I still felt weak. I still felt tired. So with kettlebell training, I was introduced to the human machine as a whole. All right, so with kettlebells, I was able to move in multiplane movements that I actually needed if I dropped something on the floor. And it's so funny because when I do a Turkish getup, I go, this is really cool. I need this for other movements in my life. So that's, that's how I looked at it. And the results that I saw from kettlebell training, cool, maybe my guns are not that developed, you know, but what I felt inside my body was different because I was comfortable in all those ranges of motion. Um, and they just look cool. <laughs> they, they look cool. And yeah, so, and I got introduced to that, you know. thankfully working with you with, with my ongoing back injury, it was definitely a process, um, but that variability that kettlebell training offers is, is so valuable.
0: <clears throat> yes, and at this time, I think I can insert my discount code for insert kettlebell uh, equipment I, sh- I should I don't have any kettlebell affiliations yet. Uh, but I definitely do believe kettlebells are the Swiss Army knife exercise tool. And um, yeah, I, I told totally you, I do kettlebell training a lot, even though now I'm more of a martial artist. Uh, so. I still find time to fine tune movements with kettlebells. I think it's the most user, not use I mean, I guess machines would be the most user friendly, but it's a safe way to induce load into our systems, I think. Absolutely. Now you've been through a lot in terms of your educational goals and how you've achieved them, your fitness goals, which I think we're always learning. We're always on some sort of journey, uh, so, what you now, after having gone through what you've gone through, and looking ahead, how would you, what would you tell our listeners is most important in or in their success and pursuit of their goals and dreams?
1: I would say two things. I would first recognize that, you know, success is built on baby steps. It starts with digging into the ground at first. Even the biggest, most fancy mansions started off from dirt. Applying that to myself or to yourselves, if anyone is is experiencing what I'm experiencing, is that simply getting out of bed should be rewarded. Simply being able to squat with just using body weight is you building your path to recovery. And it's difficult for someone who... You know, I was marathon training, I was hitting those 16 miles, 18 miles, and then this back injury came out of nowhere and changed my life for now what I think is going to be forever. I'm in a better position now than I was before, but through working with you um, and, and Lee, who you know very well as well, realizing that it really does need baby steps, and you need to remember that. Because if it wasn't for you reminding me, baby steps, baby steps, I would still be in this little dark cloud thinking my life is over. So there's that, recognizing that you need baby steps. You need to reward even the smallest things that you do. The second thing, after you recognize that and start rewarding yourself, the most important thing is for you to be your own cheerleader. We often tend to depend on external validation, whether it's in material or things people say. But if it's one thing I absolutely love to do is I quite literally pat myself on the shoulder. When I defended my thesis at Columbia, the first thing I did was pat myself on the shoulder. I am my own cheerleader. I will give myself the compliments. I love myself. And it sounds cheesy, but it really worked. Because with that, with me patting myself on the shoulder, I can build a foundation for further success that does not depend on anyone else. We can't put that pressure on other people to, oh, right? We cannot put pressure and expect other people to recognize everything that we're doing. So stick to you and then share. But don't be selfish about it. <laughs> so, or, you know.
0: I mean, I'm an advocate for selfishness, but uh, selectively, selectively. But
1: but that's another spectrum. That's another, everything is a spectrum in life, okay? So there's there's a selfishness and selflessness. You can't selfless, you know what I'm saying. You have to find that balance. I, Mm -hmm. listen, before I got married, dating life was interesting because I always put myself first and some people don't like that. If I'm not going to put myself first... no, thanks. This is not dating hospitality business. I come first. And then my mom and dad. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm going to probably start another podcast about dating life. <laughs> uh, Cause even uh, no, uh, we're not going to get into that right now. Yeah. I don't have enough. I don't have enough time on the podcast for all that, but
1: <laughs> let's just stick to help. <laughs> uh,
0: okay. If you say so. But anyway, um, I think you've painted a nice picture about what OTs can do and what you've learned uh, coming to this point. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners before we go?
1: Um, you are a wizard. In all honesty, you have shed light on many aspects of health and wellness and fitness that even I, as a clinician, as a, as a trainer – didn't even think of. So, um, to the listeners lean into what you're not comfortable with, because you're going to be surprised with the unknown.
0: Oof. That's some, that's some serious <laughs> juice right there. Some serious juice. Now, if there are any people out there who are aspiring occupational therapists or aren't sure what they want to do with their life, but may have an empathetic uh, soul and want to explore occupational therapy, or someone wants donut recommendations. And uh, where would be the best place for them to reach you?
1: Probably email. I don't know if you can put it on your handle or your comments down below. I can, I can do that. Yeah. So if you all see my last name right there, just do that. coratum, not the first one, at gmail.com. I'd be happy to, to help you.
0: So for everyone listening to this, I will... Insert this in the caption, but um, I guess she wants an email, so don't be sliding into her DMs, don't be none of of that. Yeah,
1: no, no, email is more professional.
0: Yeah, I she is definitely more professional than I am because I am all about the the DMs. Oh, god, (laughs) whatever. But I really appreciate you joining me here. Uh, and it's, it's just great to connect because uh, I don't see your face very much anymore. Uh, but Anyway, that's all we have today, beautiful people. I again want to thank Ida for her time and insight. Now get out there and make shit happen.
1: Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Health and Back. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And in the meantime, to connect with Dr. Jordan Seda. You can contact him through all social media networks at dr. Jordan Seda and online at the Until next time, and remember, if opportunity doesn't knock, build a door.